uh, you've given me a job uh, to go through Romans 9 through 11, and I want you to understand these chapters. Lawson, I was teasing earlier, uh, you know, did that mega thing last week covering eight chapters, and it was an awesome uh, scope of the thing. Uh, but it was it was there was so much there, and it's because it's eight chapters of the book of Romans. You know, the most significant expression of theology in the entire New Testament. And so Romans isn't like you know cute and little. It's massive. The length is huge. the The topic is as grand as God Himself. And so what I wanted to show you tonight to kind of sum up what you heard last week and tie it into what we'll do tonight, looking at chapters 9 through 11 is, is my assignment. I wanted to just show you a good outline. This is Tom Schreiner's outline, kind of his, his larger points, uh, working through the gospel of, of uh, to, to the Romans, the epistle to the Romans, the gospel of God. He takes as the theme of Romans to be the righteousness of God, and that's why his outline is spelled out this way. So just track with me for a second as we look at it. A gospel, the gospel has the revelation of God's righteousness. So that's that beginning paragraph in Romans that we all remember about God displaying himself in creation and in salvation and in damnation. It's, it's a big chapter. That's chapter one. The next section talks about sin. The famous section would be uh, Romans 2, talking about their throats are open graves. The, it's the total depravity section that talks about human beings are sinful by nature and by choice. That's the, the second part of that outline. The third part moves to the next section of Romans, which is about the righteousness of God, the righteousness, saving righteousness of God. Uh, you know Romans 3.23. What does it say? Go ahead. Yeah, the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so that is the very beginning of that section that explains to you that God has a righteousness that he imparts to us. The next part is the study about Abraham, chapter five through eight, hope as a result of righteousness by faith, that righteousness comes not from works of the law, but by faith. And then we get our section tonight, which is God's righteousness to Israel and the Gentiles, God's righteousness to Israel and the Gentiles. God's righteousness. I'm going to rewrite it here for a reason. I'll show you in a minute. Righteousness. Nice handwriting to Israel and Gentiles. Am I allowed to write on chalkboards in this room? Or is it physics only? So that's, that's I know there's people are going to get saved when they come to class. So... That's, that's this section, and then we'll finish this thing out over the next few weeks in, in session C, but the next thing is the really practical part of Romans that talks about church life and relationships, and that's God's righteousness in everyday life, and then Paul concludes the letter asking for help on his mission, and he wants the Romans to assist him as he moves the gospel as a missionary and an apostle, and so that's kind of the I mean, their, their stuff is practical as like fundraising, but it's mostly about prayer for the gospel to go forth at the very end of it. And that's kind of the final doxology. So where we find ourselves is right after that awesome moment in Romans chapter eight about the heights and the depths, the, the glorious expression of praise 
that comes after the chain of redemption. And that's where Lawson left us last week. So hopefully that gives you kind of an overview. And you can just leave that up there if you want. Uh, and if people are, are copying it down or uh, finding it useful, great. But so the last words we got in all these things, this is Romans 8.37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then Romans 9, 10, and 11. There are places in your Bible that stick with you for a long time. Maybe it's the verse that you first memorized as a kid in Sunday school, that one that you've had forever. Maybe it's a verse that was printed on your grandmother's uh, funeral um, paper. You know, that, those kind of verses that are, are just theme verses. Maybe it's a friend of yours had a life verse I'm thinking of lots of examples, and I'm sure you are too. A friend of mine who passed away last year, who was a youth pastor, he used to write Galatians 6, 9 in everyone's Bible. Uh, Do not grow weary of well-doing. Uh, in the proper time, you'll receive a harvest. And so I always remember Jonathan and Galatians 6, 9. So there's just verses and spots in your Bible that stick with you your whole life. Maybe it's the verse that you read when you were converted. Or maybe it's a verse that just has ministered to you in a very difficult time. One section of Scripture that has stuck with me for so many years now is Romans 9 through 11. And that may sound like a funny place to kind of hang on to, but I didn't always believe what I believe right now. I didn't always believe in the absolute sovereignty of Christ. That's probably the biggest difference between the theology I grew up with in the church I grew up in, and where I'm at now in my understanding of Scripture. The biggest difference would be I would have put forth the centrality of human will, of human decision, of the freedom of the will, over, above, and against the sovereignty of God as it pertains especially to salvation. I had a theology that I would never have called man-centered, and I would have been very offended if you told me that because I would have said, God gets all the glory. It's just that we're not robotic. He gives us a choice. And it was studying Romans 9 through 11 that convinced me in the absolute sovereignty of God and the doctrine of election, a word that means choice, God's choice. And it was Romans 9 through 11 that also put me on a trajectory to go to seminary. So understanding God's plan for individual salvation in eternity past worked out in life now that that human beings are saved if they're saved because God predestined them and chose them was mind-blowing to me. It sounded like bad doctrine to me, and Romans 9 convinced me that it's true. Romans 10 and 11 talk about how God keeps his promises to Israel and what is Israel. Is Israel the church or is it some nation in the Middle East? Understanding 10 and 11 sent me to the master seminary. So 
if there's a passage in the Bible, a, a chunk of the Bible that's messed with my life more than any other passage, I think it's Romans 9 through 11. It just so happens that these three chapters are also the most disputed and the most controversial passages maybe in the whole Bible because of the issue of of Calvinist theology, because of the issue of free will, and because of the issue of the relationship between God's work in the New Testament and God's work in the Old Testament. Now, that doesn't sound fascinating probably to some of you uh, because it's kind of theology nerd stuff. But what I want to show you tonight is just how practical this is. And I want you to see from altitude, you know, not down in the worm's eye view, not stuck in the weeds, Romans 9 through 11. So I'm not going to cover every single word of this, and I'm not going to preach for 89,000 minutes like Lawson did. So I want to help you see what the message of this chapter is, but I want you to understand that I get it, that I'm not going to be able to cover this totally thoroughly, and I want to leave like 15 minutes at the end for questions that you'll have about the sovereignty of God and salvation, some of them totally unanswerable, but it'll be good for us to put them all out there. So that's the plan. I want to go through Romans 9 through 11, 9, 10, and 11, these three chapters, show you the, the flow of the argument and kind of help you understand what it's saying broadly, and then see if you have any questions that I can maybe look a little closer at the text and answer those questions for you. Cool? All right, we got a plan. I'm excited. I love these three chapters, and I think you will too. A Tom Wright, a theologian of some renown and, and some controversy, says this, Romans 9 through 11 is full of problems as a hedgehog is full of prickles. Many have given it up as a bad job, leaving Romans as a book with eight chapters of gospel at the beginning, four of application at the end, and three of puzzle in the middle. So we're going to think about this chapter, which is super... Hmm. It looks like she-hong. <laughs> Hedgehoggy, Okay. It's prickly. We're in dangerous territory. Let me give you, thank you, Nathan, for the text about command shift C. Uh, Let me give you a zoomed in outline of this chapter. Remember, it's called God's righteousness to Israel and Gentiles. It runs from 9-1 all the way to 11-36. So what's in it from here? Uh, We'll do sub points like this. This is God's Saving promise to Israel. And that's the very beginning of chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 29, all the way through that whole chunk there. And then, it's just uh, four little parts here. Uh, This is Israel's rejection of God's saving Righteousness. This is a bicep workout. Uh, it's really sad to hear me say that. Uh, 11.10. That's 9.30 to 11.10, okay? Look, we're almost through the whole thing. Uh, C, can you still see if I write right here? God's righteousness. Can you still see God's righteousness? Wow, I just gave up on that. In his plan for Jews and Gentiles. And that is 
11, 30, no, 11, 11 through 32. And then the final part, can you see if I read it right here or do I need to read it over there? Can you see right here? D? Like you can see any of this stuff. It's like really bad handwriting. This is not hard. This is just the concluding doxology. And the big takeaway is going to be how in the world can you talk about something this technical and then end with a doxology? And that's 11, 33 through 36. Okay? That's where we're going. That's what this passage looks like, chapters 9 through 11. And it is a prickly hedgehog. What sound does a hedgehog make? Exactly. Ooh. When they run into each other. Ooh. Ooh. So... I had a lot of like relationship jokes I was just going to do right there, and I'm not going to. Okay. Do you get where this is coming from? So I think that's the part that, that when you read about Romans 9 through 11, a lot of the scholars look at it and say, how does this fit in? Paul's been explaining the gospel. God is righteous. Man is not. The only way to have righteousness is to be given righteousness, and the only way to be given righteousness is through faith in Christ. And now all of a sudden we have this section that keeps talking about, look at 9.1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, uh, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, verse 6 of chapter 9. And then he says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham. So see how this could be seen as a bit of an excursus or an interruption? Like, where where is this coming from? So let me answer that question just as we get into it. Why are we talking about this, Paul? Where are you going in these three chapters? This is totally connected to the argument of the whole letter, which is why I put the screen up there. If you look at Romans chapter 1, verse 2, It talks about the gospel of God being promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What are the Holy Scriptures when you read that phrase in the New Testament? It's the Old Testament. So the prophets and the Holy Scriptures are the Old Testament. He says, this is where the gospel of God was revealed. He goes on to say in verse 3 of chapter 1, his son was born of the seed of David. Jesus was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So these references are in the first three verses of Romans. It talks about the Old Testament. It talks about David. It talks about the Old Testament scriptures. It talks about the people of Israel. So this isn't from nowhere. He started at the very beginning talking to the Romans. The Romans were a predominantly Gentile church with a a large minority of people who were Jewish. But there's a ton of Gentiles, and so there's a little bit of tension, there's a little bit of drama. They want to know, you know, what parts of the law do we need to keep? They want to know, like, what's up with the gospel going to all these Gentile, pagan background people, and what's God doing with Israel? So he's already alluded to it at the very start. Second, in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, you know that verse because it's, uh, the gospel is the power of God to salvation to all who believe. And then you remember what it says? to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. 
So right there, you have a connection, right at the beginning of Romans, that's talking about this Jew Gentile thing. And so that's how nine, and 11, nine through 11 have to do with how this letter is unfolding. Nine through 11 addresses the very point he made in verse 17, which is to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. He's about to explain that big time. Uh, a third and final connection that shows you that this isn't coming out of nowhere. And you can flip over there if you want. It's Romans chapter three and verse one, where he says, what advantage has the Jew or what value is circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it's written. And then it goes on in verse six to say, by no means, for how could, how, then how could God judge the world? So the problem of Jewish rejection of the gospel is already at the, in the mind of the Apostle Paul. And he leaves that discussion right there to move on to talk more about righteousness with Jews and Gentiles. So he's actually picking up on this same theme. Like why is suddenly Israel, the people of God for thousands of years, the ones who have believed the scriptures and known Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, how have suddenly they turned on God? It doesn't make any sense to Paul, who is a Jew and who is still a Jew, even as he writes this. He hasn't renounced his Jewishness. He is trying to explain that, and that's why Romans 9 through 11 are in your Bible. Now, what I want to do is give you, as we kind of look over this at high altitude, I want to give you some takeaways. And I think I have four takeaways, and there might be a fifth one that I sneak in at you as we move through this material, okay? And I'll just be pointing out things as we, as we move along. And hopefully after a talk like this, you can go back, read Romans 9 through 11, maybe tomorrow morning with your cafecito, and you'll have more understanding of it, okay? So let's, let's move through it. The opening words of chapter 9 that I just read to you, Paul's heart of anguish comes out. You can tell he's upset, he says that he's not lying, and then he talks about his conscience, and he says in verse 2, great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? Well, because he just said in chapter 8, verse 39, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, except what? What could separate someone from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord if they lacked faith, Right? He has proven to them that the only way to get righteousness is by faith, believing God and embracing Christ. If you don't have Christ, you don't have faith, then you are not part of this inseparable love of God. And that breaks Paul's heart. My first takeaway from Romans 9 through 11, that's practical for you that you need in your life, that's going to actually help you and not just give you kind of theological knowledge to stuff your head with. The first takeaway is, number one, embrace enthusiasm for evangelism. Embrace enthusiasm for evangelism. Paul is not a cold Calvinist. He's not calculated in the way he thinks about the sovereignty of God as some kind of fatalist. Instead, he is weeping as he writes, great sorrow and unceasing anguish. Have you ever felt that for lost people? Have you felt that for people in your family who don't know Christ? If you felt that way, 
you have something in common with the great apostle Paul. His heart was broken because the people of Israel, his people, his family member, his kinsmen had rejected Jesus. And Jesus was Paul's treasure and Paul's mission. And for them to be cut off from Christ was for them to be cut off from God. And it broke his heart. Here you have the Roman church, an ethnic mix of rising tension between Gentile Christian majority and Jewish Christian minority. And the elephant in the room is why are there so many Gentiles in here? And why are there so few Jews? That's the church at Rome. And we don't think like that because we're so far removed from New Testament times. We're used to all kind of Gentiles, all kind of Gentiles, weird Syrian, Norwegian, New Mexican Gentiles, Korean Gentiles, etc. All kind of Gentiles from all over the world we have in a room like this. You go to Grace Church, you got every kind of country all around. And we're used to churches that are represented of lots of ethnicities, lots of nationalities. This was new. You never went to the synagogue and were like, hey man, where are you from? Everybody was from Israel. They were from the same world. They had the same Jewishness. Abraham's blood coursed through them. They didn't go to the synagogue and and be like, como estas usted? It it just didn't go like that. There There wasn't Guatemalans in the synagogue. So Now the church is full of all these languages. In Acts chapter two, they're speaking tongues like crazy and tongues are tons of languages because God is saving people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And now these Jewish people are feeling really verklempt. They're feeling really like what is happening to our worship? Uncircumcised people, they eat unclean stuff. They don't even know about, they don't know biblical history like we do. And these are now God's chosen people? Oy vey! That's what they would say. They would say oy vey. So Paul has to address the elephant. The elephant in the room is how has this happened? How has this happened to Israel? How could Israel in mass reject their Messiah? How could they be God's covenant people and then the recipients of God's promises and then suddenly be cut off? Didn't God say, I will be your God, you will be my people? Didn't God make promises to Abraham to have a land and a people and a blessing to all the earth? Where's God's promises in this thing? And so Paul in 9, verse 1 and following, anguishes over their salvation. And that's why I'm telling you, embrace enthusiasm for evangelism, and you'll have the heart of the apostle Paul. In chapter 10, verse 1, he says, brothers, my heart desire and prayer for God for them is that they might be saved. This is the heart of an evangelist, the heart of one who wants to see these people come to Christ. And we ought to have that same heart for lost people, especially like Paul does for our kinsmen. It's like an an exponential kind of love and compassion for lost people because they're his people. And he hasn't ceased to be a Jew. Chapter 11, verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So it's not that Paul has renounced his Jewishness. It's that it seems like all the nation of Israel has. And so chapter 9 is an explanation that God's covenant loyalty hasn't failed. And this is the second takeaway of four or five takeaways. Number two, I think the message, one of the messages of Romans 9 is trust that God's promises can never fail, okay? 
Trust that God's promises can never fail. And that's very practical for your life in lots of ways. What does it mean here? Well, he teaches them in chapter 9 that it's always been addressed to Israel. God has always been interested in Israel. But there's always been Israel within Israel. In other words, the sons of Korah that went in the rebellion in the book of Joshua and the ground opened up and ate them, or the entire wilderness generation was not true Israel. They perished in their unbelief. In other words, they did not go to heaven. There's lots of Israelites, descendants of Abraham, who didn't actually trust God, who rejected him, who didn't believe like Abraham did. They were not true Israel. True Israel were true descendants of Abraham, and sometimes those people weren't even actual bloodline Israelites like Rahab or Ruth. They, by faith, became a part of the people of God. And so he's explaining to them and to you so that you understand how the Bible story works that there are within Israel the actual Israelites, real Israelites are not Israelites because they're circumcised. They're not Israelites because they have the Old Testament. They're Israelites because they have what? Faith, good. That, that You've been, been reading the book of Romans. That's exactly the right answer. They're Israelites because they have faith. Verse 11 of chapter 9, it says, though they were not yet born, eh, that's not the one I want. Oh no, chapter 11, it says the purpose of election. I'm talking about the purpose of of election. God is explaining that there was chosen people, a remnant, that not every descendant of Jacob is truly Israelite, but it's according to his purpose of election that you see that there is a chosen people within the chosen people. Do you follow that? A chosen people within the chosen people. It is verse 11 in order that God's purpose of election might stand or might continue. The word election, we usually think of it in November when we're trying to bring a president in, simply means choice. The Greek word is the same as the English word, pretty much eklektos. It means choice or chosen ones. Uh, God has chosen a people just like he chose Israel. And if you wonder why he chose Israel, Keep guessing because Deuteronomy 7 says he chose them because he loved them and he loved them because he chose them. Unsolve that thing. And God loved Israel, he chose Israel. He didn't choose the Amalekites. He didn't choose the Egyptians. He chose Israel as a nation to be his holy nation. Within that elect nation, he chose elect people and those people would be saved. And then he gives examples in verses 14 through 18. Isaac was chosen over Ishmael. Remember brothers, two different mothers, one father. God's promised line went through Isaac and not through Ishmael. And then he gives another example that's even more intimate. These were stepbrothers, Ishmael and Isaac. And now he shows that Jacob and Esau were actually twins in the same womb. And God chose one of them for his blessing to go through Jacob rather than Esau. And it wasn't in anything that these boys had done. Verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, but God's purpose in election might stand. And this is where you have to reject the idea that some Christians teach that election is simply a a nationalistic or a corporate concept. 
In other words, God doesn't choose individual people. He, he chooses groups of people, like the church is his people and Israel is his people. But election is also individual. That's why he gives individual examples. So Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, and then the other example in 14 through 18 is Moses over Pharaoh. God chooses Moses and God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Now granted, Pharaoh hardened his heart in the text, and then it says God hardened his heart further. So it's as if God gave Pharaoh a final push in the direction he was already going. But it's another example of an individual chosen by God for salvation and one rejected by God or passed over by God. Look, we can't solve all the problems with the doctrine of election. It's a hard doctrine. And this is the point where he warns us in verse 19 about how dangerous it is for us to try to solve this like it's a math equation. Verse 19. Verse 18 is the hard truth. So he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Or who can resist his will? That's the natural question. Like if God chooses this guy and doesn't choose this guy, I'm pointing at these two empty chairs, just so you know, chooses this guy and not this guy, then why is it this guy's fault if he wasn't chosen? That's the question that you have, and that's the question that Paul asks rhetorically. And his answer isn't, well, it's because of X, Y, and Z. Instead, he says in verse 20, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Whoa. He warns us about how dangerous it is to talk back to God. And he uses an illustration of a potter and a clay. That the potter, the person who makes a pot, the ceramic worker person, has absolute rights to form a pot any way he sees fit. And Paul's understanding of God as, a, as an illustration is that. God is that much higher than his creatures. So that whatever he decides is right, the pot can't go, why did you make me this way? I mean, that, that's a big concept of God. To think of ourselves as mud-like pottery and God as the artisan. And that's where the third lesson comes in. It's this, determine to let God be God. When you're trying to solve a theological problem like the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, you have to be settled with the fact that you're not going to be able to figure it all out. God is God. Determine that God is God, and that will help you at least prayerfully understand that you may always lack understanding. He teaches them in verses 24 through 29 of chapter 9, as he wraps up chapter 9, that Gentile inclusion is nothing new. In other words, it's not weird that there's Gentiles in the church because the book of Hosea has already prophesied, those who were not my people, I'll call my people. To her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. I mean, one of the great themes of the Old Testament is God reaching the world and bringing glory to himself, not just one nation worshiping him, but all the nations, the, the face of the earth covered with worshipers. That's already part of their prophecy. Isaiah, he, he quotes, though the number of the sons of Israel be a sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on the earth fully and without delay. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we'd have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And so he's showing that God has always had this plan of Gentile 
inclusion as part of his purposes in election. Choosing a nation, choosing a people within that nation, and then choosing others from around the world to be part of his spiritual nation, Israel. Okay? Uh, Now we're at the end of chapter 9, we're at chapter 10, and I would just say this, election doesn't explain everything. It doesn't explain everything. When you get to chapter 10, he says once again how much he longs for Israel to be saved, that they have a zeal for God, verse 2, but not according to knowledge, that they're ignorant of the righteousness of God, the theme he's been explaining the whole letter, and they've tried to establish their own righteousness. In other words, so many of them do not believe in God by faith, and because they believe in a works kind of righteousness, they rejected Jesus's message that he's the only way and that believing on him, a person would be saved. They don't like that message. And so they've rejected the righteousness of God by rejecting Jesus. In chapter 10, Israel, it says, has stumbled over a stumbling block. And that is Christ and his cross. And that's the, what's happening as chapter 9, verse 30 through chapter 10, verse 4 is showing the the readers that pride is what has prevented them, the Jewish rejectors. Pride has prevented them from submitting to God's way of salvation, a religious zeal not based on knowledge. Pride. So catch this. Because he says righteousness that is by the law, and then contrast that with righteousness that is by faith, and then gives them a little bit of Deuteronomy 30 to prove it. He launches into a section of Romans 10 that you know. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And then the most famous verse, maybe in the whole book of Romans, Romans 10, 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, before he's talking about all this election, sovereignty of God and salvation stuff, And now he sounds like Billy Graham giving an altar call, right? I mean, if you confess in your your mouth and believe in your heart, then you'll be saved. That's all there is to it. I thought there was all this predestination and election and purposes of God stuff. And that's why the fourth thing I want you to write down is the heart of Romans 10 is teaching us this truth, which is needs to go right alongside the truth about election that we determine to let God be God. Number four, faith is readily accessible. Faith is readily accessible. Faith is readily accessible. Just because in the mind of God and in eternity past, election, predestination, uh, God's sovereign choice is reality, doesn't preclude the human responsibility of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. That's why he shows them that the reason Israel isn't saved right now, isn't only because God didn't choose individuals. And this is really important. It's what keeps Christianity so different from Islam. It's what keeps us, it's what makes Calvinism different than fatalism. Follow this. The reason one person believes, I'll use these weird people that sit so close. The reason one person believes and one person doesn't on a cosmic level, could be attributed to God's sovereign choice. If you were able to even apprehend that somehow. But on a Romans chapter 10 level, and if you asked seat 101 and 102 why they believe and don't believe, 
102, the unbeliever, wouldn't say, well, it's because I'm not chosen, unless he's like a rebellious church kid that went to a good church. He would say, because the gospel is stupid, because I'm an atheist, because why are you talking to me? And what he would demonstrate is that the reason he's not a Christian is because he doesn't want to be a Christian. And what Paul's saying about the accessibility of faith is that Israel hasn't believed because Israel has been so full of religious zeal, but without religious knowledge, that they don't have to go find him. Jesus is here. He's died. He's risen. Anyone who calls on his name will be saved. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. In other words, being a Jew isn't going to help you. Being a Gentile isn't going to help you because it's only by faith you'll be saved. He's the Lord of all. He blesses all. Chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. But why hasn't Israel believed? Why has the whole nation seemingly turned their back on Christ except for Paul and a Jewish minority? Well, verse 16 tells us the answer. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed in what he has heard from us. So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for the voice has gone out, the words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I'll make you angry. And Isaiah is so bold to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So why hasn't Israel believed? The same reason your unbelieving friends and classmates and family members have yet to believe. Because they are disobedient, rebellious, and obstinate. Wow. Kind of harsh, right? But if you're a Christian, you'll say amen. Because before you were a Christian, you were disobedient, obstinate, and rebellious. And so you get it. And it wasn't because you you wouldn't have said, well, the Lord hasn't opened my eyes yet. I mean, now you can say that. Now that you're an armchair theologian, you can think like that. But then it was because you loved your sin and you didn't want to believe in Christ. And then once your eyes were opened to the gospel, now you recognize that was the sovereign grace of God that opened your eyes, but you didn't get that that sinful rebellion was overcome by sovereign grace. All you knew is that at once, at first you didn't see, and now you do see. At first you didn't believe, and now you do believe. And so the same is true of Israel. The unbelief of Israel in chapter 9 is attributed to God's purposes in election. But in chapter 10, it's attributed to her pride, disobedience, and stubbornness. This is what J.I. Packer calls antinomy. 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 That's a word that's worth at least 50 cents. Antinomy. Also known as antinomy. But I think it's antinomy is how you pronounce it. Google, how do you pronounce antinomy? Antinomy. So... My Google has a really weird voice just now. What am I talking about? Antinomy. What does it mean? <laughs> Antinomy is tension. It's truth's intention. It's not a contradiction. It is 
an apparent contradiction. And the apparent contradiction of Romans 9 and Romans 10, not a contradiction, an apparent contradiction, truths that live in tension, is on one side, you have divine sovereignty. And on the other side, you have human culpability or human responsibility. And these are truths that are in tension. You can't go all the way over here or you're a fatalist, and you can't go all the way over here or you're a man-centered kind of God denier and you think that humans are ultimate instead of God. And so the truth of it is in both of those things, antinomy, okay? Our finite minds cannot grasp. This is beyond our comprehension. And so Paul concludes this section, which is, do you see how this has worked so far? This is God's saving promise to Israel. That's what happened to the promise. Well, God's purposes in election will stand. And then Israel's rejection of God's saving righteousness, it has to do both with their, their election, but in a practical level, it has to do with their disobedience and their rebellion. And now he moves towards this final point, God's righteousness in his plan for Jews and Gentiles. And the question is just simply this, is it always going to be this way? You know, it's, it's 65 AD or something, 72, 72 AD. And they're trying to figure out, like, is this how it is? Are the Jewish people on the out? Are we always going to be less? Is it always going to be about the Gentiles now? What's happening in the future? And so chapter 11 looks to the future. Without getting in the weeds, let me just explain it this way. The question is, is it over? Is Israel's chance done? Is Israel's fall total? So look at chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. And then he gives his own testimony to show that he's a Jew and he's a Christian. And so there is what he calls a remnant that believes. That's verses 1 through 10. 1 through 10. 1 through 10. Verse 5, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Verse 7, what then Israel failed to obtain what was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it's written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. He's saying that the Jews aren't hopeless because the apostle says, I'm one, like a big one. He's a big Jewish dude. I mean, educated by the finest minds in Judaism, a rabbi, a tribe of Benjamin kind of Jew. And he embraces Jesus as his Messiah. And so there still is a remnant being saved. It's not over. And this, friends, I think just to make this practical for a second without adding another point to this, is why I think it's important that one of the lessons that is here that we're not making a big lesson is just the propriety of Jewish evangelism. The Jewish evangelism is, is very uh, niche, niche these days. It's very much frowned upon. It's very much, you know, I mean, all evangelism is like that, I guess, in a pluralistic society uh, on this campus. Being an evangelist is not going to make you popular. You're not going to get a ton of hugs. Uh, but Jewish evangelism has always been uh, questionable uh, among in, in our world. 
uh, highly offensive, uh, both to Jews and to onlookers. And so one of the great beauties of this chapter, if you've ever had a heart for Jewish people, if you've been to Israel, if you've visited Jewish communities, if you have Jewish friends, uh, you need to be aware that Paul would, would hate to hear that idea of, well, we don't need to evangelize the Jews. Just like every single person, the gospel is supposed to go to every creature, every nation, every tongue. And so the propriety of Jewish evangelism, it's not its own point, but I just wanted to throw that out there. So what is God's plan? What about God's promises? What's the plan for the future? God hasn't rejected his people. Chapter 11 says, they will return to him. Verse 11 of chapter 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, are they gone forever? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, through their rejection of Jesus, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. That's weird, right? Verse 12, now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? How do I explain like this? If you're a Christian, raise your hand a little bit if you're a Christian. I want you to be too bold. Yeah. You're, amen, Evan. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian in part because the nation of Israel in Jesus's day rejected him and killed him. And I don't mean just because they crucified him and it was a, a necessity that there was a sacrifice. I mean, the fact that the Jewish people largely rejected their Messiah meant that Paul went first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. That's you and me. So apart from their rejection, our embrace of the gospel would not have happened on a practical level. That's the argument. He's saying that because of Israel's fall, Gentiles have been saved. And Gentile salvation will eventually lead to Israel's jealousy. In other words, they'll see that God has a covenant people that now has Gentiles as the worshipers, Gentiles as the evangelists, Gentiles as the prophets, Gentiles receiving the mediation of the king, Gentiles in fellowship with God, Gentiles expectingly uh, hoping for the return of the Messiah, and Gentiles talking about the world to come. That will invoke jealousy in some Jewish people, and they will be saved, and they'll be added to the church, and it'll look like the church in the book of Romans. Lots of Gentiles and some Jews. But a time is coming when that provocation of that jealousy, and Paul says that his ministry is to provoke them to jealousy, verse 14, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. If their, if their rejection means the reconciliation, verse 15, of the world, what will their acceptance mean as life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. So Paul sees his ministry as arousing envy in his people so that some might be saved, verses 13 to 14, and this will lead to greater riches in the world. And that's why there are Christian churches in Japan and Africa and all over Asia, and all over Europe, 
and all over North America and South America and on islands in the Pacific Ocean. There are Christians all over this world because of the riches of the gospel and because of that initial rejection by the Jewish people. I mean, that's amazing to think about how God's plan worked like that. Now, there will be a boomerang effect. Why? Well, he tells you a metaphor, and we're almost through this stuff. He tells you a metaphor. It's the metaphor of the olive tree. You ready for a metaphor? If you're ready for a metaphor, say, ATD, I'm ready for a metaphor. Evan, you're my best student. Uh, thank you for being ready for my metaphor. It's Paul's metaphor, actually. The olive tree metaphor. And I'm not a botanist, but I do raise chickens. So <laughs> grafting, you guys know about grafting. You have a tree and you can dig a little hole in its bark and you can take a branch and strip it out and put it in that little hole that you dug in the bark of a tree. And this olive tree which is some kind of domesticated olive tree that produces these certain kind of olives. You can get this wild olive tree. Maybe these ones are a little bit spicy or something. And you cut off that branch and you can poke it into the, the, the trunk of this olive tree and you tape it up and you put some stuff on there and you make sure it gets lots of water and maybe a little bit of shade on that because it's still trying to kind of graft in and eventually all the green stuff that goes up a plant, biology majors, you're loving this, all the green stuff that goes up the plant, making that photosynthesis more like Boracynthesis, what's that line? Uh, so green stuff goes up the plant, it goes to the leaves, it does what green stuff does, it also goes up to this other branch that came from a different kind of tree, a wild tree. And that branch grows. And now that branch is part of this branch. And it's some kind of cool hybrid branch. It's part of this, this old school tree, but it's new school wild olive branch, okay? That's the metaphor. The old school olive tree is the nation of Israel, the believing Israelites, those who are saved by faith, Abraham's true descendants. That wild olive branch is Gentiles. And so if you think about it, we're just a, a branch on that tree. And he wants you to know that, Gentiles, because he doesn't want you to get boastful. Like, man, we're, look at, we're in charge. The Jews are, I mean, they're rejecting, they're way out there. He wants you to know, look, you're just a branch on this thing. And remember that this tree has been pruned throughout the centuries by God. The wilderness generation was a branch it turned out to not be a real branch, chopped off. And so Paul says, warns the Gentiles in verses 17 to 22, don't boast because he can cut you off too. Now that doesn't mean that like, you know, you, you get a little prideful, so God's going to take your salvation away. Don't think about that individually. He's talking about the movement of God in history and saving Gentiles. He's saying there's a time in this part of the play, if, if this is a play in redemptive history, where this act closes. The curtain shuts, and then the curtain opens, and it's a totally different scene. And that scene could be no more Gentile salvation. Now it's time for God to work among Israel again and bring them into the church in mass. So he warns the Gentiles against boasting in 17 through 22. And then secondly, in this metaphor of the, the wild branch and the olive tree, he promises Israel that if they do not persist in unbelief, they'll be grafted back in again. Verse 23, it says, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, 
will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. So by faith, they can come back in. How does he know this? Well, the mystery is, is when the fullness of Gentiles has come in, verse 25 and 20 through 27, when the fullness of Gentiles has come in, all Israel will be saved. Now, you don't have to think about this in terms of a number. I don't think he's being mathematical. But there is a, an epoch, a time period, when God's massive, saving, redemptive work among the Gentiles will draw to a close. And the next chapter will come, and that chapter will be Israel being saved in mass. What does this look like? Verse 25 through 27. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. It's partial because there's some Jews that are saved. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved as it's written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He'll banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Verse 28, as regards to the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. As regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. How can he be so sure that the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable? Because in verse 12 and in verse 25, he has said that the fullness of both Jews and Gentiles will be ingathered. That in verse 32, he says, God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. All right, before you become a weird universalist, what does that verse mean? Look, God has assigned, consigned all to disobedience. Raise your hand if you're consigned to disobedience. You were at one point in your life. And then God showed you mercy. A time is coming when he'll have mercy on all. In other words, there'll be mercy to all, not without exception, but without distinction. Remember the context. He's talking about in the Old Testament, tons of Israel are coming to faith in God and receiving his righteousness. In the New Testament, Israelites reject. Tons of Gentiles come into faith, and some Jews. All through church history, tons and tons of, of Gentiles getting saved, coming to faith in Christ, and some Jews throughout church history. And there's been moments of Jewish revival. There's been movements where, where Jewish people have been saved in large numbers. Even synagogues converted in church history. These things have happened, but they've been small parts there's a time coming when there will be mercy extended to all, where you won't be like, wow, it's Gentile days of salvation, or wow, it's Jewish days of salvation. This is a day when God is having mercy. There's a great revival, and they're being saved without distinction. There will be a time when all Israel will be saved, and, and that has in it the concept of all elect people being saved and the concept of a national revival in Israel someday, and then you get super eschatological, but I want to go there yet because the text isn't going there. In fact, the reason I have John MacArthur kind of theology isn't because I'm like a rapture nut. No, no offense to rapture nuts among us. In other words, it's not about an argument from 1 Thessalonians that makes me believe in the imminent return of Christ and God's future plan for Israel as a nation. It's Romans 9 through 11. I can't get out from under Romans 9 through 11. 
I grew up with, with like dispensational kind of eschatology, like left behind stuff, you know, woo, and your retainer stays here and you go up in the air. And that's all fine. And, and I, I understand that argument and I can draw you a chart and everything else. But big picture for me is this argument. God is going to have a day when the headlines will say on your iPhone or on the iPhone they implant in your brain, in Tel Aviv, in Jerusalem, thousands of Jews profess Jesus as Messiah. It's going to be a day of national revival that will be the culmination and the fulfillment of Romans 9, 10, and 11. And that's why Paul ends with verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Because at the end of all of this stuff, whether you're thinking about national revival or you're thinking about individual salvation, at the end of all of it, you recognize none of us would have anything if it weren't for God's mercy. And that's why he ends with praise. So God's righteousness in his plan for Jews and Gentiles concludes with worship of God because if anybody's saved, that is an amazing work of God's mercy. Nobody deserves salvation but God abundantly gives salvation to bring glory to his name. That is Romans 9 through 11. Did we do it? It was not as short as I thought it would be. Questions? Any questions? Hopefully about Romans 9 through 11. If you have questions about the mark of the beast or something, I'm out. Not because I don't want to talk about it. We're just trying to stay on topic. What do you got? Questions? about election, about Romans 9, about a verse that you looked at that I didn't point at that you think I was trying to conceal from you. Questions? Comments? Outrageous claims? Yeah, outrageous claims. Tim. Uh, what, uh, you know, Paul talks about, uh, don't be, uh, Give me a verse. Uh, chapter 11. Okay. Uh, Okay, chapter 11, verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. And so I've heard people use that as an argument for losing the Sure, sure. And that's why I said it's not, at this point, you have to look at the larger argument. The larger argument has to do with Israelite renewal and Gentile inclusion. So he's not here talking about an individual's salvation. And I wouldn't necessarily even use this verse to prove or disprove the fact that you can't lose your salvation. I would use a verse like the chain of redemption in Romans 8, or Jesus' promise in the book of John that no one can snatch him out of my Father's hand. So I think there's lots of reasons we believe in perseverance of the saints and in once saved, always saved. Uh, the reason we believe that is because it's taught all over the Bible. We want to talk about antinomy for a minute, though. We just taught through the book of Hebrews a couple years ago in Crossroads, and that book warns you that you better keep on believing. And it's like, well, wait a minute. I thought we were once saved, always saved. Well, that's that same tension. God will persevere all his elect, but the way he perseveres them is sometimes through warnings and through threats. So you must continue to hold fast to the confession, Hebrews 3.17. So there, there's that tension there. 
So I don't think this verse is talking about individual, uh, an individual being cut off, but a movement of God coming to the end in the grafting of a branch. Because it's not, Paul isn't a branch in this metaphor. Israel's a branch. The Gentiles are a branch. Get it? Okay. Now, any other questions? A good question. Any other question? Anything that wasn't clear or that would be helpful or that you have about the sovereignty of God and salvation? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Tel Aviv. Yeah, Tel Aviv's not in here. I added that part. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So what I'm saying is that, let me get my notes out. And I, I went off my notes there. It was a, it's probably my fault. Verse 25 and 27. Let's do it right there. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. You get that, right? Like most Jews are rejecting Jesus. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The concept there is the full number of the Gentiles. That, that God's elect from all these nations will come in. And so that's the close of that chapter of Gentile salvation. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it's written. And so he's talking here, not about a national revival of Israel in verse 26. He's talking about true Israel, a true Israel uh, being redeemed, that all God's people will be redeemed. But before that, as he's talking about the branches Verse 19, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. This is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who've fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in your kindness, in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Uh, And then verse 23, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. So what's happening here is there's a concept of God's return to his promises of Israel uh, beyond the remnant present time chosen by grace, chapter 11, verse 5. And I don't know that chapter 11 is the total place to see it all. That's where you have to start looking at the book of Revelation and how God is going to restore a people through a national revival. So I don't know that national revival is specifically mentioned in chapter 11, but the concept of God renewing his people and his promise in verse 23 and 24 that when they do not persist in unbelief, they'll be grafted back in again. And when the fullness of Gentiles comes in, there will be a salvation of Israel that will involve uh, more Israelite people coming to faith in Jesus. So again, it's not explicit in chapter 11, but I'm trying to include something that I know you've heard about at church, that you've maybe read about in the book of Revelation. And so that, that's where that would fit into this chapter. Does that make sense? Okay. And good and godly Christians disagree on that. I mean, if you're, if you're a, 
if you're a Presbyterian or a Covenantalist, you probably don't agree with me that a time of national renewal of Israel would come. So that, that's something that uh, some Christians believe, even some Covenantalists believe that. Um, and it's not like a new thing. You know, people always say like the rapture is a new thing. You can find people throughout church history that believe that God will restore Israel in a national revival. I mean, way back in the 1600s. So again, that's eschatology. That's like, I mean, I'm, I'm hanging on to that. You know, I don't know the future. I know we're going to end eventually after a few more questions. Go ahead. Yes, Evan. Okay. Yeah, great point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Marty. Yeah, Samson. Sure. That's what the book of Hebrews is for. So the book of Hebrews is encouraging you to press on. And those tragic, they call them deconversions now, or uh, Christians have a word, apostasy. Uh, Josh Harris's post is really sad, and, and he was he was such a useful, I mean, used by God in so many people's lives. Uh, not just weird courtship stuff, but in like good gospel ministry stuff. So I'd say a couple things. One, apostasy, you're going to see it your whole Christian life. You're going to have friends, roommates, people in your dorm, people in GOC who turn their back on Christ and walk away from Him. And you need to have a filter for that. And the filter isn't, man, I guess the gospel doesn't work. The filter is the first John verse that says that they went out from us because they were never of us. So that's a reminder about God's purposes and election standing. You also need to have compassion on these people. And you can't just cut them off as apostates because an apostate is someone who it's impossible to come back to faith again. They're described in the book of Jude. We don't know if that's the case with Josh Harris. I pray that Josh Harris will come back to loving Jesus, come back to the true Jesus. Maybe realize that he never really knew him or that this is some bad path that he's on and, and that God will bring him back. But for ourselves, I think I would say that. I would say, make sure you understand how apostasy works. Like have a grid for the parable of the soils. You know, a, a plant sprouts up and then withers and dies. You're going to see a lot of people profess Christ but not continue to confess Christ. It's always been the way. How do you keep persevering? Well, I think avail yourself to the means of God's grace. He wants you to be in fellowship with other Christians. He, I think so many of these apostasies have to do with people disconnecting themselves from church. Now, I'm not saying if you stop going to church, it's going to you know, unconvert you. I'm saying one of the means that God uses to give you grace is the people of God is the scriptures, is prayer, is fasting, spiritual disciplines. Using those things, including your relationship with other Christians, the church, is so important for perseverance. That's why Hebrews 10.24 says, don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but continue to uh, meet together, and even more so as the day approaches, and then it warns you about hardness of heart. So there's something about being in fellowship with God's people that is preventative from hardness of heart. So I think regular Christian discipline is how you avoid a, a falling away. And that's what I think the book of Hebrews would, would tell you. Good question. Other, other questions? Thoughts, questions? This is your chance, yeah.
Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think I know what you're asking. Yeah. So Josh Harris wrote some good books. Kiss Dating Goodbye? Not so much. Uh, some of you need to kiss dating. Hello. Uh, but <laughs> hello. So that one, not, not so much. But I mean, honestly, the best part of it was condensed into another book he did later called Not Even a Hint. Some of you read Not Even a Hint, maybe? Your pastor gave it to you. It's a book about... Uh, abstaining from sexual immorality. He wrote another book that I used to go out to high school kids called uh, Stop Dating the Church. Great little book about commitment to God's people. And then his kind of final evangelical book that he wrote was um, Dug Down Deep, a book about just reminding yourself of the gospel. And it wasn't my favorite, but it was a good book. And how do we process that this is somebody who preached well, who had good theology, who wrote helpful stuff, who led people to faith in Christ, who imagine all the marriage counseling he did, imagine all the, and he got a divorce the other day, and imagine all the baptisms he did, and imagine all the guys, I mean, you want to take it to the next level, imagine all the guys he ordained in his church. He put his hand on their head, and those pastors made more pastors. And so I'm sure a lot of people, and this happens when people defect, they go like, well, is my baptism valid? Is that stuff that I learned valid? Should we burn these books in the fire? You know, kind of, how do you think about that? And I would say, this is so important. Make sure that you understand that all humans, when it comes to divine truth, all humans are merely messengers, merely messengers. Josh Harris didn't make anything up that was ultimately spiritually useful to you or anybody else. Anything spiritually useful and fruitful to you or anybody else was the word of God coming through that messenger and the spirit of God applying his word in those who received it. And apparently not in the one preaching it. I mean, that's stunning. That's stunning. And what you should walk away from that thinking is how awesome and how powerful is God's word. That it can use a broken messenger. And then you start thinking biblically again, and Paul says, we're all jars of clay. So apparently God only uses broken messengers. So there's, there's nobody worthy of being a messenger for God. Now, there are some that are unqualified, and Josh Harris proved himself to be one of those kind of guys. So that's kind of how I think about it. I think about the power and priority of the Word and the Spirit. Does that answer your question or help a little? Okay, yeah. Yes, Shi Hong. I don't know that I have any helpful or good advice to build relationships with Jewish people. I, when I had a, a business in New Mexico, I had some Jewish clients and I just loved them. And I told them how much I loved Israel. And when I lived in Northridge, there's a lot of Jews in Northridge. I would study for my Hebrew exams at this place called Weiler's Deli. And I made friends with the lady who, who ran it. And she was uh, Gail. And she, was, she loved that I was studying Hebrew. She thought it was so cool like weird Gentile dude eats huge breakfasts and 
and studies Hebrew because I eat a lot of breakfast. So we would talk, you know, and, and I, so I'm big on, can you be kind? Can you be winsome? Can you not turn the gospel into some squirt gun fight or, you know, switcheroo magic trick or weird, like, here's a track that unfolds into turning into a dinosaur. Did you know that God made dinosaurs and they died in the flood? <laughs> it's just weird. Like, why are you being so weird? Be a person and talk to people about person stuff. And then use that opportunity and relationship to, to authentically explain who Jesus is rather than some weird bait and swap kind of evangelistic trick thing. So that's, I think, what I would say, especially true of Jewish people. They've all heard the Isaiah 53 thing. Not all of them, but many of them heard that. You don't have to be a specialist. You, know? you don't have to know the Hebrew alphabet to evangelize a Jewish person. Uh, you just... Tell them the, the message of the gospel. Tell them about the hope that's in Jesus. Tell them that Jesus is the only way to God. And God can use that simple message because it's true. Not because you said it cool, or not because you are like super effective, or not even because you are especially winsome. God will use the gospel, and that gospel has fruitfulness. My problem with bait and switch or awkward conversation evangelism is that it's not really giving a person a chance to listen. You're just kind of like trapping them and tricking them. And then, you know, within 10 seconds, they're gonzo. So I'm not sure they heard the gospel. All they heard was like, whoa, another crazy cult guy just got me. So that, that's, that's why it's so important to, to be a Christian in public and to be a Christian in your, you know, lab groups in science lab. Como say, do you say lab groups? You know what I mean? Other questions? Are we good? I feel like we're good. One more? I have a sense that there's one more question. Nope, it's wrong. It happens. Uh, okay, cool. Uh, let me pray for you guys and then we're done.